For most of us, where we are from in the geographical sense is a big part of our identity. Think about it. When you meet other travelers on the road, one of the first questions asked is, where are you from? That question is, yeah, an icebreaker, but it also points to how embedded the idea of geographical belonging is. There's more to this equation of identity than location, though. We belong to a place or a country because maybe we were born there and grew up there and lived there, but there are other markers of that belonging, too language, culture, and how we look, these factors all contribute to our identity. As a light-haired white woman, my identity as Canadian has never been questioned because I look Canadian. I speak the language associated with Canadians with no accent. I do Canadian things like I say A and I go hiking. I do all those stereotypical things that Canadians do. And yeah, I'm gonna say it, this is a privilege. My identity has been pretty straightforward. We're going to explore what it's like to have a more complicated identity, one that is complicated by language and by geography, and a little bit by loss. We're chatting with Lily. She's a travel blogger. That's how she and I connected. I read one of her blog posts in which she delved into her identity as an American-born Chinese woman who now lives in Hong Kong. And she's going to share with us the experience of travel as it relates to homeland, what it feels like to travel to a place that feels both familiar and foreign at the same time, and to try to reclaim a language that you've lost. Hey, Lily, thanks for coming on the podcast and being willing to talk about something that, of course, is very personal. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Erin. So we're going to, of course, link your blog post in the show notes for anyone who wants to go and read it. But your blog post really captured me. And it kind of captured me initially because in it you self-identify as ABC. Um, That's in the title of the blog post, which I didn't know, but it stands for American Born Chinese. Is this a common term or signifier in American Chinese communities? Thanks, Erin. I think that's a really great question, just because I think that it wasn't until I moved abroad that I've heard about the term ABC being used for, let's say, people like me, people who are um, ethnically Chinese, but who were born in the United States. And in Hong Kong, it's actually extremely common to hear this acronym being um, punted around between communities. I've also heard of the term BBC, which is um, British born Chinese, and then among others. So wherever there's like a big um, group or diaspora of people who have formed their own communities elsewhere, there's usually a term that goes along with it. But I think ABC is probably one of the most common ones that I've personally heard about living in Hong Kong. So it's more a term that people use when they're outside of their home country. Yeah, and I think I think that I think because the acronym is a little bit fun, I think people just enjoy saying it more than just Asian American or another something that's more common. But I think in the United States, I I'm actually not surprised at all that uh, you haven't heard of it as much because when I was still living in the U.S., which was just up till three years ago, I. I wasn't using it either. Okay. And so you use the term diaspora. Just off the top, I want to give a definition to everyone of what diaspora means, because I think this word is going to come up. So a diaspora is a large group of people with a similar heritage or homeland who have since moved to other places all over the world. It is generally more descriptive of large migrations of refugees, um, which includes language and culture. So for example, like my parents are Dutch, but I wouldn't consider myself part of a Dutch diaspora because there was no conflict. There was nothing that forced us to leave the Netherlands, whereas um, diaspora tends to describe groups that have left their homeland because of something specific. It's usually a forced, forced move. Would you agree with that definition or do you want to like add your own spin to it? I actually think that's a great definition. I wouldn't say, for example, I wouldn't say that someone who works in finance in the U.S. 
And um, they were given this package to move to Singapore and school their kids and uh, be paid a high salary. I wouldn't say that like they're part of an American diaspora or anything like that. I think it usually has to do with big historical changes, whether that's war or whether that's a, um, a political uprooting in the country of origin. And then it ends up being a sort of migration. So you might have these enclaves of Vietnamese communities in the U.S. who are fleeing war or, um, you know, political change in their own countries. And so we would definitely call that part of a diaspora. Yeah. And so when did you first become aware, like thinking back to childhood, that you were part of this diaspora? Would you say that like your first awareness of your nationality was, oh, I'm American? Or did your Chinese heritage always impact the sense of nationhood and identity that you had growing up? I think that I became aware of it once I realized that there were so many people who had grown up like me. Obviously, no one has the exact same heritage or the exact same childhood experience. I grew up in a I grew up in Boston, sort of in um, in Boston City proper, and then also for some time in the surrounding suburbs. And I grew up with a lot of Chinese kids around me, and we all shared the same kind of experience, right? We all had parents whose English, you know, were was at varying levels. Some people's parents couldn't speak English at all. My parents' English is fairly good, but that's only because they've lived in the U.S. for a couple of decades already. And I think that when I looked around me in in a classroom and I was just like, oh, why are there so many other Asian kids who are growing up in the U.S.? I think that was what made me feel that I was ultra aware of being part of this community that came before me already. And I was just, I had just become a part of it. And what was um, the language spoken at home as you were growing up? I, my first language was actually Cantonese because when I was born, I was born in the U.S., but my parents sent me back to China to live with uh, my relatives in China for like the first four years of my life. And that was because my mom was still in Um, grad school at the time and she just didn't have the means to take care of me so I grew up speaking Cantonese but then once I was sent back to the U.S. once I had become big enough and my mother was like okay like give me my child back I um I then started learning more uh, more English words and um they enrolled me in an American school in Boston and that was where really slowly my Chinese just kind of fell into disuse and even at home, I was speaking English to both my mom and my dad. And um, so then eventually, I would say by the age of like seven or eight, I was just like fully operational English, barely any Mandarin Chinese, barely any Cantonese Chinese. It's interesting um, that your parents didn't speak their language with you. I always find this like a very interesting sort of like comparison that I noticed amongst friends um, who are first generation Canadian. Some families really insist on keeping the language alive in the household and others, for example, my mom grew up with her Dutch parents, but they had a rule always that as soon as they left the house, they had to speak English because now they were in Canada and they wanted to try to assimilate as best they could. So it seems like families tend to have different approaches to this. Do you know why your parents preferred to speak English with you in the in the house? I think actually I I think that for them it was just out of probably pure laziness. They were just like, "Oh my god, <laughs> like she comes back home every single day from school <laughs> just like speaking English." And they were, they were just like, "I I just can't." I think they just got tired of just trying to force me into speaking Chinese over and over. And they were like, we're just not going to push back against her her schooling. But that's actually a really interesting point because they did send me to Chinese school, right? So they did feel a little bit of regret over regret and guilt over it. So when I was like six years old, um, you know, they were so conscious of me speaking English all the time that they, they did enroll me in a local Chinese school. And I think that people have such different experiences living living out there, right? Like some some parents, they really want their children to assimilate. You know, they'll take their their kid and they'll say, "Hey, Tommy, like we don't want people to make fun of you for not speaking 
English. So you're going to you're going to learn English and you're going to speak it as your first language. Whereas other people, they care more about retaining their children's heritage and they really feel that strong bond to their heritage. So they really want to make sure their child doesn't forget where they came from.、Um, but for me, I was definitely one of the former. So I, I definitely did not, you know, just did not. Grow up speaking it at all,、mm-hmm. and then you talk a little bit about this in your blog post. But I guess at a certain point you became aware that there was a value to the the language of your homeland, and I guess at a certain point you started to feel、um, regret in not speaking it.、Um, when did you become like kind of cognizant of the meaning in the fact that like you weren't able to speak Cantonese? I think I think that I really became more aware of it once I went to high school because I grew up in a school where I would say like thirty percent of my classmates were actually、um, I think Chinese Chinese American and we all had different levels of fluency in speaking the language of our parents. And sometimes I would go to my friends' houses and they were able to speak to their parents in Chinese. And every time I did that, I went to their houses. I would, I would feel a lot of guilt and probably shame because the parents would, they would just go at me with Cantonese or Mandarin, and I would just, I would just scrounge in my brain for like any kind of like, just remnants of any Chinese that I still knew at that point, and. I would compare myself to my friends whose Chinese was just much more fluent, and that was probably when I first started to feel a bit of shame about my lack of language ability. And then, probably, I mean, the older I got, I realized that I just couldn't speak to my Chinese relatives in China、uh, in Chinese, and I think that was just that was pretty heartbreaking for me that I wasn't able to talk to them about their stories or how they grew up or how they were feeling. And that the only things that I was really only able to talk to them about was just like what I was eating that day, or you know, like I had gone out to do something and now I'm back and I'm home, and that was as much depth as our conversations had. Yeah. So it limited your ability to connect with family members in a sense because you couldn't converse like to the full degree that you would ideally be able to. Exactly. And so you mentioned here going back to China. I guess older. So, do you want to tell us what your relationship to travel is and how that evolved throughout your life? And about、um, maybe talk a little bit about the first time you ever went back to China as an adult and what that felt like. Yeah. So the only times that I had traveled out of the country was to go back to China as a kid. We we didn't really take. Uh, trips for leisure、um, when I was a child, just because I think we just had some financial constraints. But I think that every time that I would go back as a kid, it was always with my parents. So essentially, I had just these two talk boxes: my mom, and my dad, who would just like spit out and translate whatever I wanted to say, right? Or I, I would tug on my mom's sleeve and be like,、oh, "Like I want to eat this for dinner," and then she would tell she would tell my aunt or my uncle what I wanted to eat for dinner. But I think、um, it was I was so acutely aware that I wasn't able to do anything once I was in China, and I would kind of just sit and play, and the adults would talk at the table, but I had no idea what was going on. And it wasn't until I became probably around like university age that、uh, I went back, and by that time, actually, I had picked up more of my lost Mandarin and more of my lost Cantonese because by that time I had actually. Taken lessons here and there, and、um, I was able to speak a little bit of it, more or less, which which I am able to now. But when I went back as as an adult, I think that when you're an adult, you notice so many more things that completely you miss when you're when you're a kid. Because when you're a kid, you're only thinking about what your next meal is, or how hot it is, or how unpleasant certain experience are, certain experiences are. But、um, for people who's who visit remote relatives in other countries, I think you go back and you really start to notice sort of you know like how old your grandparents have gotten or how you know your uncle is like limping and he wasn't doing that before 
you know, and I think that sometimes I'll notice even the development of, of these Chinese cities, right? My aunt and uncle used to live in this kind of like backwater house where um, behind it, there was just this huge marshland. And I remember playing there as a kid. But then I, when I went back, when I was 20 years old, it's just all development. And it, it goes hand in hand with what we read about constantly in the news about China's economic development, how the cities are changing, how like, a, you know, a city of like, five million people is essentially considered like a small town in China. And um, when I go back to China every three years, I'm seeing that in real time. And, and it's just insane. Wow. Wow. I like can't imagine because you're right when there's like spaces in between, you notice these details a lot more when you're visiting a place or when you're visiting people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that if you're into travel, like, of, of course, you are as well. You really want to take in the details, right? And they really make an impact on you um, from just like little customs about, you know, how in China there are still a lot of squat toilets. So there's just like, you know, we don't, a lot of places still don't have Western style toilets or um, how the beds are really hard because my my relatives really value a hard bed because it's it's apparently it's better for your spine um so you know just things like that that always take a little bit of adjusting when when i visit yeah totally so we talk a lot about like obviously there's different types of travel leisure travel is like you mentioned before like it is a privilege it's an economic privilege and not everyone has access to that and there are other sort of styles of travel there are those who are traveling out of need or out of force if they're escaping, if it's like a refugee situation, for example. Um, but then there's also this concept, which I find really interesting, which is that of traveling home. So it's not really, and I'll speak to my only own experience, because that's my best um, framework to talk about it through. But obviously Dutch heritage, and I've been to the Netherlands many times, just like you've been to China. And going there feels different to me than any other travel that I do and I the best way I can describe it is that there's a sort of familiarity mixed in with the foreign element so for example like the food to me is all familiar and I know the brands because my mom shops in Dutch stores and she like brings in import products into our home and I will hear people speaking and p be able to pick up like little bits because I know just enough Dutch to to understand like basic words and so it's really shaped the way that I feel about the Netherlands and it's sort of this like weird place where the Netherlands feels like home to me I feel very comfortable there I lived there for a while but at the same time, I don't feel like I really belong there because I don't think of myself as Dutch. And so this like concept of feeling like you belong somewhere, but at the same time you don't, can you speak to that experience? Would you say that that's something you experience when you're in China, especially compared to other places that you travel to? Absolutely. I think that when I go to China, especially when I'm visiting my family, I don't really approach it with the same sort of travel mindset, like just just as you said. I think that there are certain things that I feel familiar with. Let's let's use the example of food, like you've just brought up, because I think that's a really really great example. Because if you've grown up with these um, these food items in your house, these staples, they're staples to you because you grew up with a a Dutch family, and so if you went to your classmates, right, they might have no idea what these brands are, or, you know, they might not know about how Dutch people eat sprinkles on toast in the mornings, but like, they that do that, that, right? <laughs> I know they do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Or, um, you know, or just like, like, why are, why are we eating just like a cheese sandwich with, you know, an apple and a glass of milk for lunch? But you know, that happens. So I, I completely relate to, you know, just like things that you think are completely normal. And then you, um, and when you go back to that country, they're still completely normal, but they're now, there's a whole population that's also doing it. So you feel not as, um, you feel not as foreign to them. And you're just like, oh, like, I'm one of you because I'm practicing the same cultural aspects. I think an example that 
uh, I can probably give here is when um, you're eating dim sum and if someone pours tea for you, you kind of tap your two knuckles um, or sometimes people do fingertips. They, uh, pu they put their index finger and their middle finger together and they tap them on the table to say thank you. And you, and you don't need to say thank you. You just, you just do the tap. And when I'm in uh, China and people are pouring tea for me, I'll just do it. And it's like, you know, there's like a little bit of pride there that I'm like, yeah, like I'm part of this community and I understand what to do. So when I'm living in Asia and I'm living in Hong Kong or when I visit China, there are so many things that are so familiar to me and um, it just, everything just makes sense. But at the same time, people instantly know that I'm not Chinese in the way that they're Chinese and that I've grown up differently that I think differently. I even look different because I don't know, maybe it's all those like Western hormones I'm ingesting, but like I'm a lot bigger than, than my, than my Chinese counterparts. And I'm just like all those GMOs, right. They're just like in my body. <laughs> and, and so people are just like, wow, Lily, like you're so big. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Like I, I am a big person compared to you. Um, just like things like that, that I will always feel like I'm sticking out. Huh. And then how does this translate like when you travel other places? Because like, for example, I have two friends who are Canadian born, but Chinese. And we traveled in Cambodia together. And I, I remember like, people would ask us where we were from. And I would say Canadian and the person would be like, okay, and then move on to my two friends. And they'd be like, yep, we're Canadian. And then the person, like the Cambodian would be like, no, where are you really from? <laughs> and it would happen every time. And we would talk That's about this. That's such a classic question. Yeah, and I was like, man, it must get so exhausting to just have to like constantly be like, no, like I am Canadian or no, I am American. What is your experience? Like, have you experienced this phenomenon yourself? Absolutely. And th thank you for bringing up um, the, the experience that you had with your with your Canadian friend, because when they're asking that and you give them an answer that they either don't want or aren't expecting, let's say, you know, let's give the example of I'm from Canada or I'm from the U.S. as as an example. And um, when they see someone who they don't associate as obviously Western, they really want a different response, right? And I think that as an American, and you can probably relate to this too, if, if you have like Asian friends or um, friends who are people of color, there's like this, there's this classic video uh, on YouTube called, that's literally called, Where Are You From? And a white guy accosts this apparently East Asian woman while jogging by a road. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's very classic. He's like, hey, like, where are you from? And she says, you know, like I'm, I'm from the U S like I'm from the States. And he's like, where are you really from? And she explains that she's like, there's like understanding that comes to her face. And she's like, Oh, he, he wants to know what am I ethnically sort of just like, what do I identify as racially? And she explains that, you know, like she's like part Korean and, and this guy, he just like, he's just like, oh man, like I love Korean barbecue or like there's this great place down the road. And I think in the US and in Canada, because there's this huge community of people who, who, who were born and raised in Canada and the US and in North America, I think there's a bit of frustration over being asked that question because it's like, why can't I just be American? You know, like why, um, you know, I grow, I've grown up here just like you have, but when you travel, your environment is different, right? So when people are asking, they're not really coming from a place of, I, I wouldn't say necessarily of um, ignorance or of just like lack of knowing that there's a huge diaspora of people in the U.S. and Canada. They're really just curious, and I think especially in um, Southeast Asia. I got that so much too. They wanted to know whether I was Japanese or Korean, or they would shout out like ni hao. And if I ignored them, they would like shout out like konnichiwa, right? And if I ignored them, they would like try another language, right? And it was just like, <laughs> like it just happens all the time. So, but I probably wouldn't approach that with the same kind of um, 
resentment that I used to. And I think as I get older, I just are not as angry anymore, like as a general person. So I still say that I'm from the U.S., just like your friend says that she's from Canada, because that feels true to me. Um, but if they really press, you know, I'll just say, okay, like, yes, I'm Chinese. Yeah, because I guess like when you're abroad, I think like if you get that question in the context of like your own country, like at home in Canada or America, and it comes from someone else who is clearly also American, it's almost like they're questioning your right to that identity. Exactly, exactly. And um, they really want to categorize you as, as something. And I think that it also ties into the fact that a lot of people still see um, people of color as foreign, right? I think, that, I think that if you grow up in a place like, I don't know, like the Bay Area or LA or, you know, these big pockets of big cities, I think people understand that there are a lot of diverse communities. But I think if you were, go to, you were to go to, I don't know, like, Idaho or something where there's just like there are fewer diverse communities I think that um you know people people might be curious right and they might be like you're not American um or they might be more uh they might be thinking of people of color as as more foreign and that they can't be American so I think I think that's exactly that's exactly on the mark yeah but like going talking about this now and then I think back to you saying that like when you're in China people seem to be able to identify that you are not born and raised in China. It's almost like in both countries, then your identity is almost, it's not um, concrete. I don't know if that's the right word, like, or if you understand what I'm trying to get at, but it's like, I think so. I imagine it's frustrating to be asked that question at home and then be in China and have people not view you really as Chinese. Oh, completely. I think that also people really want you to choose. So there's a common question that I get when I'm in China. And people always ask, do you think you're American? Or do you think you're Chinese? And they really want you to pick one. And if I, you know, if I'm like wishy washy, and I'm like, Oh, like, I don't know. They're like, No, like, you have to pick one. And I'm like, Oh, God. <laughs> and like, even like with this political environment, it was just like, I just really don't want to pick one right now, okay, dude. <laughs> but but it's it's just going to constantly be a battle, and I think that a lot of Asian Americans are very familiar with this kind of internal struggle or internal conflict, the feeling of not quite belonging when you're in the U.S. in this culture, this pop culture that you've grown up with, and you're like, well, I know who, um, you know, I know who Kim K is, and like. I know about the sitcom Friends and I, you know, use dating apps if I'm single and I, I've grown up in this culture. But then when you, as you get older, I think when you realize that there is a part of you that doesn't quite belong, I think there are a lot of Asian Americans try to, try to find their roots. So there's this huge trend of people wanting to go back to their language. Um, my little brother, who is 22... He didn't grow up speaking Mandarin or Cantonese, and he just enrolled in like Chinese, like very elementary levels of Chinese at his college. Because when you get older, you realize that there is something missing, and that there is a whole part of your personality or your history that you haven't quite discovered. But then when you go back, and like I, I live in Asia now, I, um, you still feel like you don't know the language, and people actually see you differently. And I think there is no solution to this kind of dichotomy. There is just none. And I think what people end up doing is they end up trying to find comfort in this new community that they've created for themselves, which is why we have shows like Fresh Off the Boat or why people really relate to the main character, Rachel, on Crazy Rich Asians, because you're like, that's my identity. You're like, that's, that's me, right? Like, that's my struggle. Right. And on the language thing, I you have me thinking now, like one time I was in the Netherlands with my mom, who is fluent in Dutch, and we were in a grocery store and checking out and she wasn't speaking Dutch. And I remember afterwards asking her why she didn't want to speak Dutch in public, um, because she's fluent in Dutch. And she told me, oh, no, like, I'm not I'm not native Dutch speaker, like my Dutch is weird. 
because I learned it secondhand and I grew up in Canada. And I thought that this was such an interesting observation because like, it's clear to me that the language is very important to my mother and she does use it a lot at home. So then it was quite like shocking to me that she felt a sense of like, um, self-consciousness, I guess, speaking it like when she was actually back in the Netherlands. And I imagine like that must happen to a degree as well, especially if you learn to speak Cantonese or Mandarin later in life. Yeah, I think um, there is that self-consciousness that you mentioned. I always feel self-conscious when I speak Mandarin or Cantonese here. And I think it's because sometimes people think that they understand that you grew up abroad, but there's also a sense of, but you've lost your culture. So they they almost think, oh, like, what a shame. There's a sort of pejorative term that people use in Cantonese here, where they uh, will call someone a um, a joksing, which means bamboo. And sometimes people think that it means like, oh, like, you're hard on the outside, but you're hollow on the inside, which is like, <sighs> sounds really awful. <laughs> but um, but basically, it's a it's sort of a pejorative term for people who um, who are Chinese but who grew up abroad. But it's such a common phenomenon now that now we people just have a word for it. And I, I don't think that will ever go away. Like I still feel nervous when I are sort of forced to speak uh, to speak Chinese in certain situations, but it will never stop me from trying. Uh, and I still try. So but that, that's actually a really, really great point. So I know that now you're living in Hong Kong and on your blog, you discuss the challenges that you've faced there in Hong Kong when it comes to language Um, and just in general as well. Can you tell us about some of these challenges? Yeah, I think that Hong Kong is so cosmopolitan and where I live and work, which is Hong Kong Island, there are people speak English a lot more on the island than in other parts of Hong Kong. And so as a result, I just haven't had to use Cantonese as much as I thought I would. And in my blog post, I, I touched on on it a little bit, how I, I dreamed of coming to Hong Kong. You know, I, I just like had this vision that I was going to come out so worldly. I was going to speak perfect Cantonese. I was going to speak perfect Mandarin. And when I moved here, I actually I actually signed up for Cantonese lessons. And I was really gung-ho about it. I was like, I'm going to I'm gonna go in head first. But actually, my journey hasn't been like that at all. Mostly because I think that it's not actually been as immersive of an experience as I thought it was going to be. And when I go to work, we speak English. Um, on the streets, people can sense that if you're hesitant about speaking Chinese, they'll immediately switch to English because it's just like, their English is better than your Chinese. And it's not like you're in, if you were in mainland China, for example, people may not necessarily switch to English because their command of English is just not the same. Whereas in Hong Kong, it's so common for people to be able to speak perfect English. So I've kind of really struggled with with that. And although it makes life easier for me that I don't have to have this language barrier preventing from living my everyday life, it does make it harder for sort of like what's going on internally for me. And as a result, you know, three years in living here, I just don't speak Cantonese as as well as I thought I was going to be. But I definitely still try. And uh, there's a certain sense of comfort now that I've been living here a while. And there are so many things that I was so familiar with at home growing up in the States, again, like certain foods, um, certain customs that I'm actually living out in real life, which is which is really great. Yeah. And actually, it's interesting. My partner lived in Hong Kong for a while, so we've both spent a decent amount of time there. And when I think about Hong Kong, like compared to mainland China, it's sort of it's more a middle ground between West and East, I think, culturally in Hong Kong, like you can live a very Western lifestyle if you choose. And like you say, so many people speak English. So it's almost like this perfect middle ground where you're not fully committing to the culture shock that a lot of people feel 
when they go to China, it's more, it eases you into it. Exactly. I think that's both the frustrating and the comforting thing about Hong Kong is that it can be as Chinese as you want it to be culturally, or it can be as Western as you want it to be. Um, just like provided that you have enough money and like you can make it anything that you want to be and you can stay at the Ritz Carlton and only eat at expensive Italian restaurants and never have to interact with the local culture at all if if that's what you choose. So, but yeah, that's totally Hong Kong for you. Yeah. So there was one specific quote on your blog that really captured me. Um, so I'm just going to read it. I'm a product of diaspora. I left my language because of complacency, because of shame, because there wasn't a future where I could see myself using it. But by the time that future presented itself as not a remote impossibility, but as a definite reality, the thread that bound me to it had become sparse and thin. Is there a future for me in my language? Um, so it's obvious in this beautifully written passage that you've struggled with the loss of your language and you've wondered if there's a future now for you in speaking it. What is it that troubles you specifically about losing that language? Thanks, Erin. I'm really thankful that you chose to bring attention to this part of my blog post. And I think a big part of why I wrote this was because I wanted to be honest about my overwhelming sadness about losing it. I was so positive when I moved to Hong Kong for the first time. And as someone who's like really into optimization and self-improvement and people are constantly um, being overwhelmed with, you know, reaching your goals and like how you're going to make more money and how you can meditate and how you should wake up at five o'clock every morning um, and all of that. This was really hard for me to write because to me it was almost like I'm conceding that I may not get to my goals and that it's very possible and very probable that I will live the rest of my life not being able to um, communicate in Mandarin or in Cantonese in the way that I want to. And I think that when I go back to China, I really feel that because uh, all my relatives are getting older. But I feel like it's been a huge missed opportunity that I haven't been able to connect with them and talk about their lives or their worries or their joys and not being able to fully grasp that is something that is still a huge source of sadness for me and it's totally possible that um I'm just not trying hard enough right like if people are like Lily like you totally can do it you just need to care enough about it and take the right steps to get towards those goals but I think that and I think that's probably where, where my own personal struggle lies. You know, if I only have one life, then I'm worried about there being this huge part of untapped potential in my, in my personal history. And I'm still working towards that. But I, and I still have hope that I'll, I'll get there. But I think at the same time, I'm making peace with the fact that um, I may only get halfway there. I can understand that frustration, but like as someone who's also attempted to learn language, I tried like similarly when I lived in the Netherlands, I really wanted to come back from that experience fluent in Dutch and it didn't happen because in the Netherlands, everyone speaks English and similar to your experience, they could sense right away that I wasn't fluid in Dutch and so they would just switch to English right away and it became very frustrating and I felt similarly like I was failing but I realize now that um, language is very complex to learn and I don't know that I just and maybe this is like me just being super forgiving of myself but I just don't think I have like the brain to learn language. I know other people who pick it up really quickly and I've never been this kind of person. And so I'm trying to be forgiving to myself for not being able to achieve that because I think like we can't put this much pressure on ourselves. Mm, I completely agree. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I didn't, I didn't know that you had had a similar experience as well. Yeah. Cause similarly, like granted my grandmother spoke English really well but still, like, there would be conversations between her and my mother, especially as she got older, um, that were in Dutch. And I always wished that I could understand them. 
but I I will tell you I have recorded a lot of my grandmother speaking in Dutch and so in the future sometimes I think okay maybe in like 20 years I'll manage to learn Dutch and then I can go back to these recordings and understand them <laughs> that's actually an amazing idea yeah I would recommend doing it just because like even Even though I don't understand Dutch super well, I still find it very um, therapeutic to listen to. Um, so has it been therapeutic to live in Hong Kong? You've, you've been there three years now, so you clearly really like it. But would you say that like it um, makes you feel more in touch with your Chinese heritage living there? I think it definitely does. I think something that I have never experienced growing up, but I def definitely do have in Hong Kong, is... Um, literally the privilege of looking like everyone around me or like 90% of people around me. And when I was in the U.S., particularly if we, if my family was taking a vacation outside of Boston and we were maybe in a more rural area um, of Vermont or like we'd go to restaurants where it, it was just totally out of our comfort zone and everyone was white, sometimes I would feel just really uncomfortable. Like I felt really out of place and I mean, probably they didn't, they didn't care about me or like my Chinese family and I'm making it up in my head. But when I moved here to Hong Kong, looking like everyone else has just been, first of all, it's a huge privilege um, to be able to walk around and not be judged for what I look like or anything else because I'm just treated like I'm the majority. So I think in that sense, it was something that was new to me, but also I kind of just like fell into like like it was just a comfortable bed so I think looking like everyone and having that kind of Chinese privilege has been a huge part of why it started to feel really comfortable I think also it's been therapeutic in the sense that there are so many things that I've just habits that I've picked up naturally because I was already introduced to them from a young age like for example like drinking warm water or drinking hot water is something that is really ingrained in Chinese culture because in Chinese culture they say that like iced water is really bad. Um, you know, I'm, I'm eating the same foods that I grew up eating. I'm just eating them more often. And it's always like a huge source of joy for me to text my parents and be like, look what I'm eating. And then my parents are just like, wow, we made that for you all the time when you were little. And it's just, yeah, it's just been really great. But at the same time, if I really miss home, right, like I can go and get like an enormous burger And, and that's also really good. So it's just, I can like tap in and tap out as, as much as I want to. And that's been a huge source of comfort. That's so, I mean, like, obviously living in America, like when you, like you say, like you feel that you're looked at when you're in a room full of white people. Um, this is obviously something that like a feeling I will never understand, but then like it really raises this idea of like how important it is for us to feel belonging And I guess like it's very frustrating to hear that even at home, you didn't always feel that. Oh, yeah. And, and when you grow up like that, it can be kind of disconcerting. I think sometimes like when I'm with a like a white friend or someone or a friend who's a person of color, but not Chinese or not Asian, and we go into like a really local restaurant in Hong Kong. And Hong Kongers, like, they've seen foreigners, right? Like, they're not strangers to, to foreign faces. But when you when you walk into, let's say, like, a super local um, restaurant and there's, like, no English menu and we go in together, people definitely look, right? And it, it, I, I think it's just, I mean, you've probably experienced that when you're traveling, too. And people are just like, oh, my God, like, what is she doing here? But not in, like, a vindictive way, right? They're just so curious about why you would really want to connect to this really local part of part of the culture. And I think I think when I think I've heard from people who have lived in China for a long time, they tell me that it does get old. They're just like, I never feel like I belong. And people are always like coming up to me and being like, are you David Beckham? And it's like, <laughs> I'm not David Beckham. And I'm not Britney Spears or like anything like that. Right. Um, and they want pictures with you. And I think that when you go back and you can just kind of blend in, <laughs> I think, and just like be yourself without people being curious about you, I think is uh, really an underestimated feeling. Yeah, for sure it is. I mean, like, I can I can say, like, when I traveled in India, it did become old very quickly. 
being stared at and like stopped for photos and such. But at the same time, like I do notice, especially in the travel community, that a lot of um, white people think it's really cool and like they always talk about how this happens. So I think like there is a little bit of this like for white people, it's this like um, novelty to be treated this way when you're abroad, especially if like, say you go to India for two weeks, like in that two week period, it's still fun. And I guess like that kind of points towards a little bit of privilege because like we can think that it's cool because we've never had to deal with it before in life. And like, there's no negativity attached to that attention that we're getting. Right. I think, I think that's completely, I think that's completely fair. I think, I don't think it's bad either for people to enjoy it. Right. Because sometimes like positive attention can be um, just like really invigorating. But I think when you, I think it's important for people to think about just, Oh, how comfortable I feel at home and for me, it's been vice versa, right? In the States, I don't also, I don't always feel comfortable. Um, but like, apparently now, now I do feel comfortable, even though I'm, I'm not home. So how, like, how would you say, if it has, your identity impacted your experience of traveling, not just in China, but all over? Yeah, so this is in amazing question and I think that even for this topic we could probably talk about it for ages because I think that the travel industry and I think travel bloggers they are now starting to become more aware that identity has a huge impact on how you travel and the way people perceive you I think no matter who you are or what you look like it will shape your experience completely And I think that bloggers or um, people in the industry would do better to actually spotlight this more in their documentation of their travels. And uh, I think there's a lot of pressure to describe destinations or experiences as amazing or, you know, people were so nice to me or people were so not nice to me. And I think particularly if you're um, if you're like able bodied or if you're a guy or um, if you have a lot of money to spend, you can shape your experience in a country completely differently from someone else. So if I were, you know, if I were a millionaire and I were a white dude and I went to Thailand and I wanted to spend all my money at a really expensive hotel, if I came away from that experience and I went back home to New York or whatever it was, and I was just like, oh my God, like people were so nice to me. You know, Thai, like Thai people are so. I'm not saying that Thai people are not nice. Thai people are are so nice, but right. But if if, if I've like set up my whole travel experience to fling a lot of money at people and to have a really expensive experience, that's going to be some a completely different experience than let's say a black woman who travels to I don't know like the Czech Republic or something for the first time. An an example that I can give is, I don't know if you guys are familiar with um, Gloria, who runs the blog abroad, but sometimes she writes about her experience as a Black woman traveling in certain parts of Europe where she's fetishized for the color of her skin, or, you know, she doesn't want to leave her hotel room because of how people are treating her. And if you don't add that narrative in your travel experience, I think that it can misguide people who may say, oh, but that country is amazing. You know, your experience is not is not valid or your experience is not the experience that I had. And I think that's why we, um, I don't know if you guys are part of these Facebook groups for like solo female travelers, but for example, like women will get together and they'll have these conversations about which countries they felt more comfortable in or, um, you know, which hostels are sort of more friendly to women. And there's a reason for that, right? And it's because of what we look like and what we present as. And in certain places, you're going to be treated differently because of it. And I find that, like, the content that I prefer reading and prefer following is content that discusses these nuanced experiences. Because reading these blogs that are just, like, this city is amazing. Here's like the top three things to do. It gets very boring very quickly. And I think it's like such a missed opportunity in finding things to celebrate like culturally and like different experiences 
are amazing to read about because it's it's something that you can experience yourself. Exactly. I completely agree. I, I'm so positive about the travel experience in general. I just wish people would share more about um, more about what they're actually experiencing. But I think, yeah, I think people people just like they want to be positive, right? So they're just like, oh my god, like Paris is so amazing, and I like, <laughs> and it's like, it's just when you're on the tenth blog article yeah. about that, <laughs> you're like, okay, no more. <laughs> Lily, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing something that obviously is very personal, and um, I know that like it is work to educate white people about your experience because a lot of the time white people are not willing to do the work themselves to learn these things so I really appreciate um you coming on the podcast and sharing these personal things with us thank you so much Erin like thank you for giving me the space to do that I I really really appreciate it and I really enjoyed I really enjoyed doing this with you I'm glad. And do you want to share, we're going to link the specific blog post in the show notes, as well as your blog in general, but did you want to share your social media handles or anything else? Yeah. So um, people can follow me at Lily Wonders, which is spelled L-I-L-Y-W-U-N-D-R-S. And my blog is the same. So it's just www.lilywonders.com. Alpaca My Bags is hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced by Katie Lohr here in Toronto. If you guys liked today's episode, let us know by leaving a review. To do that, just tap the review tab in the Apple Podcast app and then leave us five stars. I mean, assuming you think we deserve it uh, and also a review. Um, Doing this really helps us in the charts and it helps us reach more people with this podcast. So if you want to find us, just head to Instagram or Twitter and look up at Alpaca My Bags Pod and feel free to reach out and say hi because we love hearing from you alpaca pals. Until next time, I hope you get to alpaca your bags soon and remember, take that train instead of the plane.